Well, this is, I think, the third message in our series in the book of John, or First John. So if you're uh, newer to the church, we've been going through the letter of First John. We're going to kind of slowly walk through it up until uh, Christmas messages. So, so if you want to catch up, you can go to our YouTube channel and watch past messages. But today we are in chapter 2, and the title of the message is, How Do We Know? How do we know? So follow-up question B, how do we know what? How do we know if we are truly Christians? How do you know if someone else is truly a Christian? How, how do you know? Is it possible to know? Are there evidences? Are there things that the Bible tells us to look for? Well, we kind of started this subject last week. And we're going to get into it more this week because it is one of the things, one of the primary things that John's letter addresses. He he really is kind of doing a number of things with his letter, but two things that are very noticeable. The first is he is exposing those who say they're Christians, but really are not Christians. So he's exposing that through the letter and through what he writes. And he's also writing to bring assurance to those of you who are genuinely Christians, that you would really know at the deepest part of your fiber you would know. Kind of like Donna shared this morning, that you would not just think that Jesus died for his people, but that he died for you. And so one of the things I believe the Lord wants to do today is really, by his Holy Spirit, give you the assurance of your salvation if you truly are in Christ. Um, Listen to 1 John 5.13. It's kind of a summary statement of his letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So I write these things. I wrote this letter, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this can be a tricky subject to to think through and to navigate. So to help us, I want to use two horse sayings that are well-known to help us and guard us and protect us as we go through this passage. Okay, so the first, you should know this saying, and I think we have an illustration for this one. Saying number one that's going to help us with this passage is don't put the cart before the horse. Okay, so we got a guy there. So we need to know to not put the cart before the horse. One of the major pitfalls to avoid is the idea that our good works will save us. That if we do good things, God will accept us and love us. That's putting, if we get that illustration back up, that's putting the cart before the horse. See, the the biblical equation is we Repent and believe. We repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. And then the cart is behind the horse. And then the cart slowly over time fills up with good works. But see, when we have it backwards, then we are approaching God in a way that God never intended us to approach him through what Jesus has done on the cross. So do not do that. That will help us. The second horse saying that's going to help. You wouldn't believe how many horse sayings there are. If you Google horse sayings, there's a lot more than I thought. Second one, we don't want to fall off either side of the horse. So when we're talking about is someone in Christ or not in Christ, 
Two mistakes are really, really common, and they're addressed throughout the New Testament. And the two ways we can fall off, I don't have an illustration. I know you're all looking for an illustration. Um, the only one I could find was a guy laying on a mud puddle. So he, he landed, but he didn't, he didn't fall off. So, I mean, he eventually fell off, but it didn't get him in the action. That's what I wanted. So don't fall off on the side of legalism, which would be a works-based salvation. And so we don't want to fall off on that side to think that somehow our acceptance to the Lord is based on our performance, like the cart before the horse. The other side which I think is often very common, is the side of license. Well, if Jesus died for me, then I can do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. You don't want to fall off either side. And what we're going to see in John's letter in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is he's going to help us to navigate. One, not having the cart before the horse. And two, not falling off on the side of legalism or on the side of a license to do whatever we want. So two horse illustrations or sayings to help you. So look in your Bibles, or look on the screen behind me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to do with this passage is we're going to ask three simple questions today and seek to answer them from the passage. My little children... I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Like John, tell us what you really think. Uh, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you know new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So there's a lot of information there. So we're going to kind of take it in sections by asking three questions. And the first question is this. How does obeying the Lord and the good news of the gospel work together. How does obeying the Lord and the good news of Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, coming to earth, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to heaven, how do those two ideas work together? Look at verses 1 and 2. They're going to provide the answer for us. My little children, 
I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So, if you weren't here the last few weeks, John is, a, is an older man, uh, probably youngest he could probably be is like 75 to, to 95, we'll say. He's, he's up there in age, and so when he's writing my little children, most commentators believe he's, he's writing to the whole congregation. It's, not a, it's an endearing statement, not a demeaning statement. So it's with great affection, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he's a seasoned pastor, he knows what life is like, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And this Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. So as the elder statesman, he is writing to the church that he loves. And he's calling them to walk in holiness. To obey the Lord. Not, not as a means to earn salvation, but because they have been saved. One of the things I love about John is how direct he is. So when he writes in verse 1, so if you're wondering, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you want us to do? What we, what should we, how should we respond? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's how I want you to respond. I'm going to write this letter. One of the main goals is that you would not sin. And in context, if you remember what happened at the end of um, chapter 1, he's in encouraging us to walk in God's light and to confess our sins. So he's addressing one side of, let's say, where you could fall from the horse. Now he's addressing the other side. Yes, you can confess your sins and you can walk in light and the blood of Jesus cleanses you. But it'd be far better that you grow in obedience to the Lord and his word. And this is where it gets confusing at times, I believe. So let's, let's make it as clear as possible. So the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is a free gift to be received by faith. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you receive the most incredible gift and you received it by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so your acceptance before a holy God is based solely on what Jesus has done on your behalf. It really is a free gift. But for everyone who has received this free gift, God's Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so when that happens, God's Holy Spirit begins to change us and transform us from the inside out. And so when we get saved, if the cart's at the right place, it, it, it's empty at first. And then over time, little by little, fruit begins to pop up and show up. And sometimes over time will show up in abundance. That would be the Lord's will for you. So we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. And we are called to live in obedience to Him. Now John knows 
we're going to stumble and we're going to fall at times. And our old nature is going to rear its head at times. This is why he says, um, verse 2. We'll start at verse 1 and then go to 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So if you are in Christ, you truly believe Jesus. You truly turn from your sins and trust it in Him. You have an advocate with the Father. You have Jesus Himself advocating for you before the Creator of the world. He is advocating for you on your worst day as a Christian and on your best day as a Christian. And then what John writes next is so important, but I think oftentimes we can read it and we might not know what it means, so we just kind of move to verse 3. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So we have an advocate His name is Jesus. He is the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. I'm going to guess that word is not one you use often. So look at the person beside you and just say the word propitiation. Say it one more time. Propitiation. It's kind of a fun word to say. Propitiation. So from this day forward, we're going to all know what the word propitiation means because it is really central to Christianity. Some modern translations actually don't use the word because it's not a common word. But it is an important word. So when Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, it means he, uh, when He hung on the cross as fully God, fully man, completely sinless, He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He died in our place. He propitiated the wrath of God. He absorbed it. So what that means is if you are a Christian, there's no wrath for you. There's no eternal punishment for you because Jesus absorbed it all. And then also in that word is another word that's not common, which is expiation. Meaning when he propitiated the wrath of God for us, when he absorbed it, it was also removed from us. So we are free to worship and obey God. The Lord, because Jesus absorbed the punishment that we all deserved. And if you are a Christian, that is always true for you. You don't lose this. He doesn't forget about it. You are completely covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus alone. That's the good news of the Gospel. And that good news is a source, should be a source of joy always for us as Christians. And that good news should be a motivation that in light of all the Lord has done for us, we want to run hard after Him. We want to obey Him. Because when you first trusted in Him, you trusted in Him as Savior and as Lord, as Rescuer and as King. And the king has things to say to us for our good that we do well to listen to. So the moment you became a Christian, God's Spirit came inside of you, made you alive. Your spiritual heart began to beat for the first time. And with that was a new ability 
to change, to grow. I love how Paul captures this in first, or first, Second Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So in every Christian, there should be freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so, the Gospel and obedience, they, they work perfectly together if they're in the proper order. Which brings us to the second question. How do we know if the Spirit's there in us or in a loved one or a friend that we're, we're seeking to share the gospel with? How do we know that we know the Lord? And all the English grammar people, I, I know this isn't a good question. But hopefully it's a memorable one. How do we know that we know the Lord? How do you know that you know? How do you know at your deepest core that you know the Lord? Well, John has some things to, to tell us about that. Look at verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. How do we know that we know the Lord? By this... We know that we have come to know Him. By what? If we keep His commandments. How do we know that we know the Lord? By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So let's kind of slowly walk through this. The idea here of know, like how do we know? Um, most commentators, and I, and I would agree with this, would say that that know that how do we know if we're in Christ? That know is speaking to the, the covenant language that we are in Christ. We are part of the recipients of the new covenant. How do we know that we are God's beloved and covenant children? Well, one of the ways we know is if we keep His commandments. If we do what He says. Now, not perfectly, but generally, we do what he says. Which is why he says, verse 4 might, might sting a little bit. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now this subject to me feels a little bit like playing with dynamite. Like, you, we can mess this up really quickly in a whole bunch of ways. One really important ground rule to know is we're not the Lord. So you and I do not know what's going on in someone's heart and mind. And so we're, gonna, we're talking a moment about how do you talk to somebody that you think they say they're a Christian, but boy, I, I'm not sure. What do we do with that? We're going to get there. But remember, the Lord is the Lord. He knows all, and we're not Him. 
But if someone is in Christ, the general trajectory of their life should change. There should be a change. Now that change, this is where it's tricky. Remember, we're not the Lord. That change may start very small and may be on the inside before it comes on the outside. So go back to the, the you know, just picture that picture of the cart and the horse. There may be like one little sprout in the back of that cart that was never there. Guy was as dead as a doornail spiritually. God awakens him and the first sprout comes. But over time, there should be a growing evidence of a desire and an ability to obey the Lord. Over time. Now we all want to know, well, how much time? And how much fruit? We don't know. But there should be a transformation that happens because God's Spirit is inside of a, a believer. God's Spirit, the one who created all that we can see and can't see just by speaking. That Spirit is inside of you then there's going to be change. There's going to be transformation. There's going to be a struggle between the old you and the new you. I find this quote by John Newton really helpful on this subject. So John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, um, he was part of this African slave trade in the 1700s and God rescued him and he, he repented and turned from all of that. And he, he, he went on to be a, a, a very fruitful pastor and he wrote this, and, and I'm going to assume this is probably older, when he was older. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So let, let's think about that one more time. I'm not what I ought to be. So the standard is perfect obedience to the Lord. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not what I want to be. There's a desire. I want to be more than I am in conformity to Jesus. I'm not there yet. I'm not what I hope to be in another world when the sinful nature is no longer in existence. But still, I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And so if you are in Christ, you should be able to look back and think, well, the Lord has changed me. I'm not what I used to be. Not what I want to be yet, but I'm not what I used to be. And that's where Christians, we need to help each other to show and point out, well, I really see God at work in your life. Do you remember how you used to act at football games? You don't act like that anymore. How did that happen? Oh, God's changing you. Do you remember how fearful you once were? And now you're not as fearful. Or whatever it would be. See, God is at work in his people. The point John's making, if there is zero evidence internally or externally of someone who says they're Christian, you should be concerned. If that's you, you should be concerned. If there's no evidence of any desire for the Lord, any desire to submit to his kingship, any desire to read and obey his word, you need to evaluate that. See, the, the promise of the new covenant is incredible. But I think often when we think of the new covenant, and rightly so, we think of communion. We think of Jesus um, 
breaking his body for us and shedding his blood for us. And that, that's how we have the new covenant. But listen to what Ezekiel says of what happens on the inside because of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. See, the problem in the Old Testament was never the law. It was never God's perfect standard. The problem always was human nature. There was no ability to obey God's perfect standard. But when the new covenant came and God's Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, He changes us from the inside out. So how do we know that we know? Well, one is you have a present faith in Jesus Christ. You really trust in Him for your salvation. But two, you are aware that there is a desire to obey. There is conviction when you fail to obey. There is a desire to walk in the light and not hide. See, becoming a Christian is much more than Name only. So, the category of nominal Christian would be somebody who says they're a Christian, but there's, there's no relationship with the Lord. There's no evidence of a heart for the Lord. There's no evidence of this Ezekiel reality happening in their life. It's in name only. And I, and I think as parents who are raising kids in Christian homes, or those of you who are being raised in Christian homes, this is, a, this is a tricky one to think through. That you want to, let's talk to the kids and teenagers first. If you're being raised in a Christian home, wonderful, awesome blessing. But your mom and dad's sincerity of faith doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. It's something to thank the Lord for that you are in a home with a mom and dad that are Christians, if that is your reality. But you need to call out to the Lord on your own and trust in Him on your own and ask Him to save you from all your sins and submit to Him as Lord and King. That's something between you and Him. And parents, we, we have to be careful to not, Christian parents, to not make it a works-based salvation, but keep pointing them to the good news of the gospel. But if there's zero desire, zero evidence, it's okay to ask questions about that. Hey, I'm concerned about you. I know you say you're a Christian. Tell, tell me why you think you're a Christian. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Remember, we're not the Lord, but we can engage uh, gently in those conversations. We just don't want to fall off the horse on either side. It's easy to do. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And just listen to what it says, and I'll tell you why it's one of my favorites. 
This is talking about our union with Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by a baptism in his death. That's not talking about water baptism. That's talking about our union, our immersion into Christ spiritually. With a baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, the reality of the resurrection is that you can walk in newness of life. You can change. You can grow. You can be different. And so if you feel trapped and enslaved, there is freedom that you can experience in Christ. That is an incredible reality of the new covenant. And so... What's challenging about this subject is there's some of you maybe watching online or in the room that you are genuinely Christian. You really believe in Jesus. You have really trusted him, but your conscience is so tender and on fire that you're thinking, I I don't know if I'm a Christian. To you, think and look much more at Jesus than you do at yourself. Uh, A famous pastor who is with the Lord, Robert Merck, Murray McShane said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. So if you are genuinely a Christian, you really love Jesus, but your conscience is on fire all the time. That was my experience as the first year I became a Christian. I I just felt guilty all the time, even though I was genuinely born again. I I was taking wind readings of my heart and mind and soul way too much. And I was barely looking at Jesus who paid for my sins. So you just want to reverse that. And as you reverse that, there will be times where you need to respond to conviction and confess your sins to the Lord and to others. And you'll change and grow. But spend a lot more time looking at Jesus and who He is, how much He loves you, and what He's done for you. If you are born again, there will be evidence over time. Just one word of caution to another group, those of you who might just want to pounce people all the time. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> just don't do that. That's not helpful. You don't like to get pounced. I don't like to get pounced. You want to go to them, but just remember, if you ever have grown a garden, there, there's just some plants that grow faster than others. If you go to an orchard, there are some apple trees that are more fruitful than others. Fruit at times grows really slow. And sometimes it it just barely sprouts. Sometimes it's very abundant. Just be patient and gentle. Don't compromise, but be patient and gentle. And if you have that tendency, read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the introduction, and see how Paul starts his letter to a really messy, messy church. So, Let's look at verse 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, how do you know if you know? Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to live the same way which he walked. So if you have a desire to read God's word and to obey God's word and to live and and be obedient to how Jesus lived and was on earth, and to be loving towards others. That should encourage you 
in your faith. That should encourage you in, in the ways that God is at work in your life. And if you're in a small group, spend an evening where you just point out to one another where you see God at work in each other's lives. See, the problem with us is we, we know what happens on the inside of our hearts and minds, uh, which other people don't. And so that can be discouraging, right? So we need to, to, to have people give us this wide lens view. Oh, no, I, I see God changing you. I see God at work. I see God producing fruit and change in your life. So God's love is being perfected in us. If you are born again, it will be evident. And one of the primary evidences is how we relate to, treat, and think about other people. This one's going to hurt a little bit. Maybe. So, third question. How does knowing the Lord transform the way we relate to people? Because it should, trans it should totally transform the way we relate to people. Now, verse 7 8 and 9, I think, can be a little confusing. So let's look at them. Beloved, it says, Dear children, I'm writing to you a new commandment. Not, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So you could ask the question, this is what I do when I read the Bible, well, which is it, John? Is it an old commandment or is it a new commandment? You're going back and forth. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what is John talking about? Are we talking about an old commandment or are we talking about a new commandment? Yes. Yes, we are, he would say. So we're, at, at, we're trying to answer the big question. How does knowing the Lord transform the way we relate to people? So when John, let's start with, uh, I'm not writing to you any new commandment. What's he talking about? What he is talking about, he's transitioning here um, to talking about the subject of love versus hating people. And what he's saying is this idea of loving your neighbor, loving others, it's not a new commandment. It's not unique to the New Testament. That's what he means. So let me give you an example. In Leviticus uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 18, the second half, says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall, God's people, you shall love your neighbor as as yourself. John saying it's not new. It's not new that we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. But then he says, verse 8, at the same time, it is new. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So what's he talking about there? Well, with the coming of Christ, with the new covenant, with Jesus being the friend of sinners, with Jesus being the one who opened the way for every tribe, tongue, and nation to know the Lord. He, he made the love more radical. We should have a category if we are followers of Jesus 
that we are called to love everyone, the most unlovable, the most unlike us, the most um, different from us in philosophy and ideology about any subject. We are called to love them as men and women, boys and girls, teenagers that have been made in the image of God. I want to read a quote from the ESV Expository Commentary. I thought it was really helpful. It's crystal clear. Love for fellow believers is a non-negotiable part of the Christian faith. If someone professes faith but does not love his fellow believers, say it all, like if we're measuring percentages, it's zero. Such a person has not been truly converted. Love may be stronger or weaker, more or less consistent, can go up and down on the scale, but if conversion has occurred, it will be present. So if it is zero, that is a concern for evaluation of where you stand with the living God. If it is waning and growing at times, Lord, help me to have more affection for your people. Help me to have more affection for those who aren't like me, who don't look like me, think like me, act like me. Give me your heart for them. See, a genuine love for one another is to be the mark of a true Christian, of God's people in general. Listen to what John wrote in John 13. This is Jesus saying, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Remember, he loved you when you were really unlovable. He loved me when I was really, really unlovable. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the mark. That shouldn't be just true of Saving Grace Church, but every Christian in our county, in our region, throughout the world. So, in this very backbiting, word-spewing, volatile age that we live in, that's just cutthroat and mean, we have an opportunity to really be different. To really, really, really be different by what comes out of our mouth, by what we type with our fingers, by what we say to others about others. So this, if you are a believer in Jesus and, there, and you feel like, ah, oh, man, I, I want you to reflect back. Think of the last month of things that have come out of your mouth, come out of your keyboard, been on your social media feed. Maybe you wrote it. Maybe you shared it. Ask the Lord, Lord, did this honor you? Did this show a love and affection for people that are not like me? I think this is the one this is in many ways the opportunity of the age right now for Christians to be very radically different. So it doesn't mean you have to conform to what somebody is thinking and how they're thinking about a subject that you think very differently about. But it does mean that we should move towards those who are not like us. 
particularly those who do not know Jesus. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Sin is the enemy. They're the reason Jesus came to earth. He came to gather a huge people for himself. And so our affection for them should be growing. This is one of my, probably one of my biggest pastoral concerns right now. One for myself, but also for us as a church. That we would just grow in affection for God's people, both in our church and other denominations and, and uh, churches that might do things differently. We should have a great affection for the people of God, but we should have a great affection for the lost. One of the driving verses in my mind that really helped me to want to come to Christ in the first place and has really shaped me as a Christian is the Lord saw the crowd and he had compassion. He saw the crowd. Now, I want you to think about this. This is Jesus. So he saw every perverted thought. He saw every angry person. He saw the people that hated him. He saw the people that hated the people they were beside in the crowds. He saw people fighting to be healed. He saw all the ugliness. How do we know that? Because elsewhere Jesus said he did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in men. And that same Jesus who could know the heart intentions of all saw the crowd and he had compassion. So if you're on social media feed and somebody has an idea that you think, oh, I think that's wrong, I don't think that's right, Pray for them. Ask the Lord to show them his love and mercy. May our attitudes not be one more thing that, that distorts and pushes people away from knowing Jesus. I mean, when I came to IUP, I was not a Christian. I was wild in all my ideas about everything. So all the, the stuff culture that's bearing fruit now it's been underground for, for quite a few years, and I fully embraced all those things. And Christians who had very different ideas than me were very loving to me. They brought me in, and they pointed me to God's Word. They pointed me to Jesus. And so the things that were moral and right or wrong according to God's Word, they, they changed and they transformed as I learned God's word, and I learned to submit to Jesus as king. But we have an opportunity to really love one another. It's interesting, I don't spend a lot of time on social media because of how volatile it is. It's just not good for me. Um, it doesn't encourage me very much. I'm not saying it's wrong to do it. It just doesn't encourage me. But one of the things I've, I've often thought is people on the way far left, let's say, politically, and the way far right politically, they almost seem identical in the way they talk and fight each other. Opposite views, very similar attitude. Very similar. We don't want, we don't want to be like that. We have been the recipients of God's free, amazing love. 
And that love should change us and give us great faith and hope that God can save anyone and everyone who calls on his name. So may, as we're going through 1 John, my prayer is starting with me that my heart, my affection, my my attitude towards others who see the, the world different than me would, would not be one of compromise, but would be one of great affection and concern for them as a human being. So we have been recipients of incredible love. We are to love incredibly. I want to close with 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is good news. He, if you're in Christ, he loves you. Times will convict us. He wants us to change. He wants us to grow. So let's pray. And then Jason's going to come up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, for all of us who genuinely know you, we we pray that our heart's affection and attitude towards others would would grow. We would be moved with great compassion. For anyone who doesn't know you, we ask that they would see you for the first time. And uh, Lord, we we thank you for the fun we're going to have this afternoon. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.